Hey everyone, today's episode of How AI Built This, uh, as you probably have guessed, is brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts headquartered in Edinburgh, probably the best recruitment company in the world. So thanks to those guys. On the show today, we have Jimmy Hosang, um, who is the CEO and founder of the Modular Analytics Company. Um, they're a data consultancy headquartered in Manchester. Jimmy has a really interesting background and story uh, and kind of how he got to, to being the CEO of this company. Uh, and indeed starting it he's done kind of almost every job you can imagine before getting into data starting in kind of MI risk pricing and then moving into kind of contact centers where he did a lot of uh, planning and analytics around that uh, and then kind of in 2018 setting up what, he, what he's doing now so I'll let him tell the story um, I'm sure you will enjoy it and um, he's an absolute ball of energy uh, and a super good guy um, so welcome to how we I built this Jimmy Hosang Thank you for joining me today, Jimmy. Uh, good to have you on. Nice to be here. <laughs> uh, we always talk about education at the start of the podcast. I know um, if you've listened before, but uh, we always start on education. And uh, one of the reasons I say that is because nobody ever really comes from the same backgrounds. And, and we're keeping that trend going. Uh, from what I saw on uh, your LinkedIn page, you did a bachelor's in media and performing arts, right? So not a, a traditional route into data. No, and and I failed at it as well, badly. So, um, yeah, so so definitely not like a traditional route into data. I think, um, yeah, education's an interesting one for me. So, re- relatively speaking, you have to make decisions like at a very young age. So, like at around fourteen, you're choosing what you're doing for your GCSEs. And then you, you, once you've done your GCSEs, you do your A-levels, A-levels to university and stuff like that. And it just kind of spirals. And so, yeah. um, so like, you probably, ha- I probably had a decision when I was 14 years old, um, what type of stuff I wanted to do. And I'm an inherently lazy person. I'm just going to say that now. And like, I think it, like, I think it was Tim Ferriss I said, like, I'm an inherently lazy person and my whole life is like a series of stratagems to like thwart my internal laziness or words to that effect. So so like at 14 though, I didn't realize how lazy I was. And I just thought I'd just do the things that I was like naturally good at and I could just sail through. So like I'd done performing arts and acting and things for a, a long time and it was just relatively easy for me. So I did I did that and then that kind of led on to media studies, media studies in performing arts and English at uh, A at A level. And as well, like I'm not being big headed, but I was naturally talented at some things. But then what happened was in between like college and university, like natural talent gets you absolute fuck all, like because you need to work. And like, and I just didn't know really how to work. <laughs> like I was just lazy. So I did three years at university. Um, I, I learned a lot and I, I learned a lot of interesting things. So, so I remember one of my university lecturers, Mark Bishop, he, I was always a bit of a clown and I was doing 20th century theater acting and he, uh, he asked me to stay back after a class. And he showed me, uh, he, he gave me a video, and it was a video called Mephisto. And it's about a guy who, um, he, he's a, an actor in uh, Nazi Germany, and he becomes famous because the Nazis, like, love this play. It's, called, it's about Mephisto. He's a bit like um, Caliban in, what's that, The Tempest. So he's like oh, a yeah. devil 
Um, but he becomes this role, and then he, and then the role that he plays becomes like symbiotic with his like status in society. And he can't see his difference between the role. And um, Mark Bishop said like that was a bit like me. Like I was just a joker, <laughs> and like I was just a joker, the character. And like then I play roles that were joker than characters and stuff. And he goes, but he kind of said like when you grow up properly, you'll want to do something serious. He goes, all the clowns. They always turn out to want to do Shakespeare. And I almost think like this is kind of, it's a bit trite and a bit poetic, but this is kind of like my Shakespeare. Like for a long time after that, then I wanted to be taken seriously about certain things. Um, For a long time, I always felt like I'd not really like achieved what I'd wanted to at university. And then I was behind the curve. So I had to try like extra hard to like get, get, um, get in front of it, so to speak. Yeah, nice. No, I like that. I like the honesty as well. So putting all of that into kind of where your career is, I mean, if you look back to, I think it was in around 2009, you were um, kind of doing risk analysis for Freeman's Grattan Holdings. I looked at some of the stuff you were doing for them and some of the stats you had on your uh, LinkedIn. Do you think that would be kind of a data scientist in today's money? Like, were you doing a lot of that work just maybe before it was called that? Um, so an interesting point. So I think just before I'd got to Freeman's, I'd been working, I'd been working in kind of operational analysis, um, kind of doing some operational analysis, but really doing more like stakeholder management for, for Vodafone. And what I decided at that point was like, I wanted to do data analysis. I just needed to get a role in a, in a position that had allowed me to, to do that. I was fortunate enough to get the get the job at Freeman's, I think what what became apparent there was there was a differences, and and I'd, I'd not worked in like an analytical environment before. So I worked in pubs and bars and restaurants, and I did a bit of acting. Um, then I worked in telecoms and sales, so I never worked among analysts. And and this wasn't like a a slight on them, but a lot of them came from the same background, so. A lot of them had math come from a maths background or a stats background or economics, and they, they were all like kind of had the similar similar mindset where it was safety first. Now you would admit you you know obviously the, you're working in risk and pricing, um, and you're working at risk and pricing during the financial crisis, so yeah. every right to be risk averse. But but the I. I think I got the role there because I was slightly different. I was more happy to take on like certain risks. And I started to do a little bit of a, a kind of a bridging role between marketing and marketing and risk. Because um, what happened was if you if you um, if you set your risk parameters like too too high, too stringent, then you've got no one to sell to, no one to market to. And what you want to be really doing is finding like what's the positive return on investment, and um, what's the what is the acceptable amount of risk for the ultimate reward, so to speak. So yeah. I was like, so I suppose in that regard, like I never the data scientist thing kind of sits a bit uneasy with me anyway. Um, I think it's quite broad. There's a lot of different. There's a lot of different things, but I do think that the ethos around around hacking data together and and finding a solution, finding an endpoint, I think that ethos like is definitely like transcended into like the the data scientist kind of lexicon. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I, I was actually going to jump into the Tesco Bank doing kind of commercial 
pricing analysis again I, I i wanted to ask the same question kind of was it using a lot of those same skills so you were looking at like pricing models forecasting like trend uh various trends that i'm sure you see when you're in that kind of financial services world is do you think a lot of that is kind of crossover and makes sense in the data scientist kind of position now or again does it kind of stem to the fact that you think that's a little bit too broad anyway like the whole data scientist term the, i wasn't i wasn't really a, a Tesco for for very long, so I was on a, a three month fixed term contract, and yeah. and and the way in which it was set set up, it was Tesco had just broken away from uh, from RBS Insurance, so it was like a group of guys in pricing doing pricing and segmentation and reported in like a little in a little office away from everybody else, like in the particular <laughs> office. So the guys that, and what what I really learned there was. Um, I learned around like segmentation, aggregators, the way in which like aggregators, like price comparison websites had inserted themselves into the conversation yeah. and, and almost had, had like dominated like, uh, and owned the customer conversation without insurers even understanding that that was what was happening. So, so like it must have taken like I was I was young at the time, and it's and it's like you know ten years ago now. It almost like without them realizing, price comparison websites just exploded, and you know these big insurers like you know RBS Insurance or, or what's become Direct Line and all these types of companies, and now I wouldn't say that they're a utility. But the, the comparison website is the one who like owns the first point of that customer journey. Yeah. Um, I think I learned. I think I learned a lot about that. And then I, I worked with some really, really great people. So I'd only be, I'd only been coding SaaS for a year at that point, and so I'd gone into a three month fixed term contract, like after only coding for a year, which was like, which actually was nuts, right? And and it was a big risk. I had. I had a one-year-old daughter at the time, and yeah, it was a bit it was a bit strange. But what I learned was I worked with some really great people, and I, I, I saw a guy. I was sat next to a guy called John, who I would send him code, and without him even testing it, he would look at the code and then just rewrite it and then send it back to me and fix it. And I was like, man, that guy's like shit art. <laughs> like, <that's- laughs> I want to be like him. I want to be able to see it. I used to have to test my code and like look through it and stuff like that. And he could just do it. He'd do it off a notepad, not even in like the, not even in like an IDE or anything. He'd just like, yeah, bring it over. It was done. And so I, I, I think I've, I've got like a really good barometer about where I was in terms of like my journey as a coder uh, from that short engagement. Yeah. No, that's great. And then, um, <laughs> kind of piecing together before you you went to direct line i mean you, you did another few uh another kind of various kind of different mi insights analytics type contracts was it similar to tesco where you kind of did a, a few months here and there and just kind of built up different skills at different places yeah so this is it's it's not my career has been like absolutely not by design the only the, the only design was i wanted to learn SaaS because I knew that it was prevalent when it came to when it came to analytics. Like obviously the world's changed now, but 10, 12 years ago, everybody was using SaaS. And up until a few years ago, like the the coding language that drove the highest value for your like earn, your career earnings was SaaS. Yeah. So so that's what I wanted to do. Um, 
but it's not been by design and I've just been out of my comfort zone a lot. So that I think, you know, there was a lot of other like little contracts here and there, but I think the main one was I did a year at, um, at Lloyd's Banking Group. And when I went in, I needed to fix like a particular problem regarding the marketing campaigns. Um, they were driving a, re uh, a negative return on investment. Uh, some of them were, and I was asked to, um, I was asked to just have a look at it to understand. Now, because I'd done like kind of roles around optimization before in Freeman's, like the optimization between marketing and risk, it was like, well, why is my ROI off? Is it, are we spending too much? Have we gone too far down the model? Uh, is the selection criteria correct? And that was a bit of a baptism of fire because, you know, at that point then I was like 15 months into like my coding journey and I had to fix like direct marketing campaigns for like a big bank. And I think from that, there was, you know, some, uh, the work at John Lewis. I was at RBS Insurance again. I'd gone back there as a contractor. But all of these different things were were really the main takeaway from them. I don't even necessarily think it was the subject matter expertise. I think the main thing was, it was I was out of my comfort zone and it was like sink or swim. So you have to, you have to like swim, otherwise you, you're knackered. Um, yeah. And I think that's the... I think that's and I think that's the important part. Um, up until getting to uh, going to uh, back to direct line. Yeah. So before we get to direct line, actually, um, you touched on kind of you were maybe a year or so or a year and a half into your coding journey. How did you learn to program using SAS? Did you just crack on and learn it yourself? Yeah. So before I started, just just trying to think of the timeframes. It was probably about 2000 and, 2007, 2008. So I used to live with a mate and we used to play poker online all the time. And I was okay. I'd make like, you know, 100 quid here, 100 quid there. Um, he was really, really good. Like he'd make like, you know, thousands. And we'd just yeah. play. And I'd play and play and play. But, you, but to win like hundreds of pounds, you'd play for hours and hours and hours. And I was like, there must be like a better use of my time than this. <laughs> so, um, and I, I was a bit like, I think everybody gets it. I was in a bit like, a, what does this all mean? What am I going to do with my life? I was working behind a bar. I, I, in fact, I was working in sales for, for Vodafone and stuff. And I was like, I need to do something better. So I taught myself how to code SQL over the course of a year. So I downloaded some, uh, I downloaded some software. I just used open source open source yeah. libraries and things and taught myself. And then when I got to the Vodafone role, when I was on site, I started to teach, I started to have access to like real data so I could do real manipulation. So that was like, SQ, that was SQL. For SaaS, I've never had a SaaS training course. So I've never been formally trained in any of the basics by like SaaS directly. A bit, a bit later on in my career, um, I started to work with a guy called George Ribeiro who's um he's a qualified sash trainer but he's a statistical he comes from a st statistical background building yeah. irs9 models and all this type of stuff now and um, he taught me like stats and the and the basics around that but but from coding it was just like just get on and do it and and do it long and understand that you're not going to learn everything straight away it's like a grind like just enjoy the grind and yeah, over the course of probably three years, some people would say like I'm still shit at programming now. But like, you know, <laughs> you know, just like no, don't enjoy the grind. Get some formal qualifications. <laughs> but like, yeah, um, but I think that's that's it. You've got to just stick with it. I think that's what I'd I'd, uh, I'd take away and and do it almost like 
well, if you can do it a lot and often, but do it like little and often, do like one or two hours every single day, like trying to hone your craft. Yeah, um, that's great advice. The funny, the funny thing though is, right, so it's like I code like I play guitar. Like I never cared about learning the skill. I just cared about like smashing out Don't Look Back in Anger, <laughs> like at a party and pissing everybody off. So like when you code for like analysis, like the point isn't your code. The point is like the output and what you're supposed to be driving from it. And so yeah. I still to this day, like people look at my code and they go, it's formatted shit. You've not annotated this, you've not done that. But I'm always like trying to think of like what I want to do with it at the end, not like how neat everything is and how there's no errors when it runs. <laughs> how now I'm at the position where I'm like, uh, I don't have to worry particularly <laughs> about, about that type of thing. Um, yeah. But at certain times, I did, like, come up against people who were, like, very particular about how code should be. And, yeah, that's just not that's just not really me. <laughs> yeah. I like that, too, though. And then kind of, like, I think it was 2012, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you end up as the Insight and Analytics Manager at Direct Line. So was that just a combination of all the experience you had kind of in FS and insurance and understanding, kind of bridging those gaps that you talked about before? Did that come about from that? So what happened was um, I used to always want to work in marketing because I thought that that's where it was like where everything was happening and it was sexy and stuff. Um, And then I'd worked in marketing at Lloyd's or marketing effectiveness. And I decided at that point that I was going to do, I was on a fixed term contract and I decided that I was going to go to a day rate. So I'd moved to, I'd moved to day rate contracting and I, and this was just the first, the first role so I'd been at direct line twice. So the first, so the first time, I think it's RBS insurance it's labeled as, but it was, it's what became direct line. Yeah. And I worked with the planning team there and I was amazed because I knew absolutely nothing about planning and like con- contact center planning is a very, very particular skill. Mm. Like, just in and of itself, like resource planning, productivity, shrinkage, demand forecasting, all that type of stuff. And I sat next to a guy called Paul Pritchard, who like, he had everything in his head. He was like, absolutely brilliant. And I was programming in SAS, he was programming in Excel. I'd program something in SAS and he'd do it in Excel just so just to show everybody that he could do it. <laughs> it <was> that <laughs> but I learned so much about like, you've got, You've got different types of things that's going on in a contact center. You've got, you've got handling time, the control of handling time. You've got demand, so like the number of calls that are coming in. And you've got productivity. So you've got like take you know, sickness, absence, holidays, um, getting on getting in on and off the phone. And that triangle and the way that it moves around and, and stretches and contracts and stuff, it's like such a skill to be able to like handle that. And I just became really interested in it because marketing affects your contact center, risk affects your contact center, like promotions affect your contact center, products affect your contact center. But it was a bit of the um, the forgotten the forgotten element in analytics. Everybody has so everybody has like big risk teams, like everybody has like pricing teams, marketing marketing analysts and stuff. But in operational analysis, it actually like pulls all of this information together and that, and then puts it into a coherent plan 
about how you deliver against these types of things, um, against marketing targets, against pricing, like fluctuations, but nobody ever, nobody ever looked at that. And then over the course of those two stints at, at Direct Line um, or RBS Insurance, like I really grew fond of that type of analysis um, because it had a bit of everything. And I suppose I was relatively strong at it because I could face into the marketing team and talk to the marketing marketing team in their language. I could face into the pricing team to, to, to talk to them with their language and, and other like CX teams and things whilst at the same time trying to pull everything together for planning and, and, and effectively like tell us the reason why we've not, tell us the reasons why we've not hit plan. And can you, and one of the streams was, you know, can you build better forecasts? Like, can you forecast more accurately? And we did some really, really great things around that, around using econometrics to forecast demand. And that's where as well, so using econometrics, that's when I started to really feel like without getting too political, I started to see things like in terms of the correlations in demand, which I then started to go, oh, well, that's really interesting. Like, you know, house, like how house prices and house moves like drove insurance because obviously when people move houses, they're going to have to change their insurance. Yeah. And then when insurance, there's a price, it's a pricing conversation because the price might go up. So, actually the housing market and how people are moving around it it's driving like all sorts of other behaviors probably from from retail you know from people buying like new furniture ikea and stuff but also like in insurance markets and stuff as well and i started to see like how how housing in particular and and house prices and stuff like affected like premiums and demand and i was really and i was really pleased with with some of the results um, that we got from those econome econometric models. I think ultimately though, what I learned as well as going through it is it was bullshit because, <laughs> because it didn't matter how accurately you did your forecast, you still only had X amount of budget. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter if you're getting like as close to that line as possible and it's super accurate. If your budget's here, your budget's there. So, <laughs> so what are you going to do about it? And I've learned a lot about that as well. So about not investing time in doing interesting but potentially wanky things that aren't of any use to anybody. There should have been like some much better things that I could have been doing around like optimization and optimization of your budget versus demand. Um, yeah. I think. I'll lesson from that yeah i think it's a good lesson for anyone that works in data just now because there's i think there's a really easy like you can run away and do loads of really cool stuff and then like it never sees the light of day because the board are more worried or oh, not more worried they're only worried about making money so um yeah the thing is we've talked about that before on the podcast like you need to you need to make the fd or the cfo your pal before you try and do anything wild and out of budget well, it's, I, I think where people go wrong massively is they don't understand their internal value proposition. So everything is always, and it was the same with me, and it's the same with like my mates, it was always, I want 50 grand to buy this bit of kit. Yeah. Well, what's the bit of kit going to get me? Well, I could do this a bit faster. I could do this. I'll do this a bit faster or, you know, it's it's point and click so you get a little bit of a productivity like point and click is like honestly it's, it's bullshit because the whole point of these point and click i'm just going on a tangent right now but like yeah. um 
Yeah. So some of these point and click applications, and I'm not having a go at them, but if you know how to code, you don't need point and click. And if you don't, if you don't know how to code, you need to understand logic. So if you don't understand logic, like how are you going to build a point and click like logical like stepped process? So what yeah. you had, you had loads of companies buying point and click applications. Well, name them by name. You know who you are, right? And then people just still wrote code in them because you because it was quicker for people to write code because once you understood what to do, so. Yeah. So yeah, so you have you have like a demand from people like myself, like and I've been guilty saying I need to spend like X amount of thousands of pounds on this. And what they've not done is they've not looked at what the, the internal value proposition is. So what you need to do is you need to go like I'm you need to almost tie it to a piece of work and go, I'm going to drive an extra million pounds worth of sales, but to drive that extra million pounds worth of sales, I need a machine learning platform the machine learning platform will cost a hundred thousand pounds the cost of, the cost to build the first algorithm to get you to the to the million is going to cost you 50 grand in resource so 150 grand but it's going to drive you a million pounds a year do you do you want do you want to buy that i don't think enough people do that i think yeah. historically i've not seen enough people doing that and and even like I'm passionate about it with MI. So MI teams, they go, well, we're just MI. Well, no, just turn it into a value play. Like take your, take what is a flat piece of Excel, like turn it into a product. How much product, how much is that product supporting the business? Well, if the product supports the business, then you've got a much better tangible like benefit. And then maybe you'll get like some better kit. And I saw that quite often that, we were just asking for money, but we didn't know where the money was coming from. And look, I think that that's been borne out. Look at the last 10 years of tech spend. Like, you know, look at the amount of people who've spent, you know, millions on, I don't know, I'll just say it like Hadoop or, yeah. you know, and then what are they doing with that Hadoop infrastructure? I was like, like, look at the companies who go, we've got Teradata, now we've got SaaS, now we've got Hadoop, now we've got Azure. Now we've got AWS, <laughs> like, so yeah, it's just like like a a, merry, a bit of a merry-go-round of all this type of stuff, and like yeah, just throwing money at technology, not actually doing what you said at the start, like flipping on his head almost. My the my business partner Sean, who's our chief commercial officer, he calls it the shiny bit of tin that'll solve all your problems. He goes <laughs> like, easier to go. This bit of tin will like solve everything, but. It's, it's rarely like that. I think most of the time you've got to have like, it's the, the people, the platform and the product. Like you yeah. need all of them. Like, you know, you see it now with other things like like great technology, Databricks is fantastic. SageMaker, Azure Machine yeah. Learning, the, the, the Mint, like the point, point, and, point and click, clean your data, do this, do that, like set it up, run, like brilliant. Problem is, like, it's a Ferrari. Like, it's a Ferrari F1 car, okay? Like, if I got into a Ferrari F1 car, I'd just kill myself instantly because it's, like, <laughs> too much. Like, I've known people, like, who've got these kind of technologies and built a model, like, boop, and it's just, like, 
but <laughs> it just doesn't work because you still have to know some of the some of the underlying principles. And then when, you, when even when you know the underlying principles, like you, the people who know the underlying principles know how to code. They know how to code R or Python and stuff. So, so I think it, the, there's been a lot of technical uh, technical debt and um, technology debt, like over the last kind of um, over the last decade, and that's actually like. Yeah, why? Like one of the reasons why we started started our company because the 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 outcome should be more important. It should be outcome driven, and yeah. then and then you should work back work back from there. That's why. Yeah. I okay. Well, let's quickly get onto that in a second. Then what you're doing now, but so you were at um, Daryl Line Group, and then you went in to do a very similar role at Web Help. So I was going to ask you about this. The there seems to be kind of like a like a slant towards contact centers. And I think you do some of that work now as well. So is that still something you're like super interested in? Yeah. So I'll be honest, like, so I I was still like undecided about what I really wanted to do. And, um, you know, you probably heard me speaking right now. Like I'm not necessarily like cut from the same cloth as like a really like slick corporate, like head of or director of or anything like that. And so I didn't think like in, a, in necessarily a corporate environment, I would do like that well. Um, yeah. But then I was given the opportunity to, um, uh, at WebHelp that's, and it was one of the, I think it was the real like catalyst for a lot of the things that, that we do now, because um, I got to work with some like really, really interesting people, but culturally uh, I just, I loved it because like almost to a man, everybody was like, really really focused not focused maybe the wrong word they were really driven like it was it was always like tomorrow we need to do this tomorrow we've got this to do we've got this to do it's very very fast paced quite at a lower level quite entrepreneurial and really focused on like the augmented experience between outsourcing your outsourcing your um your operations but then the value add of of analytics and insight to drive that and then just had people around who could bring that to life yeah and i just i i, I really really enjoyed my uh, enjoyed my time there you must have been the happiest man in falkirk by some distance if you were actually through there the what's that hotel called that's right by the web help thing it's the inside out the outside in right yeah i had to stay at the outside in more times than i wish to remember and um <laughs> Yeah, and having to first walk into there, so go from the travel lodge. Is it travel lodge or a premier in premier in? Like travel over and then walk into that place where you've got like bridges and gnomes and stuff inside. And then yeah, the only thing that I would ever eat there is the mixed grill. And I, I, I tell you what, we made sure that that meat was dead. I've never seen anything more <laughs> more crisp in my life. <laughs> yeah, I was glad I was uh, I, I was home working most of the time. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. No, that's true. Uh, nothing against Walker, obviously. It used to take me five hours on the train. <laughs> so. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't envy you at all. So in April 2018, uh, I think you've done some other contracting works like in between web help and this, but um, kind of the big thing in, in kind of 2018 was uh, setting up your own company. So um, the modular analytics company. You've touched on it already a little bit, but what kind of drove you to having like your own thing rather than working for yourself as a contractor? Probably in 2000 and the end of 2017, or the middle of 2017, I was on holiday with one of my mates, and um, 
I'd, I'd done work for him before, and he he commented. He said, "How come how come you can do analysis like what seemingly like miles quicker than everybody else? So whenever whenever you someone scopes in an analytics project, usually like your your analysts or your, your data scientists or your dev like you know suck the teeth, and it's like oh it's probably a month, maybe two months. But I used to churn through the work like you know." days and weeks everybody used to take the piss actually that everything was two days i used to say everything was two days <laughs> <laughs> so um so i just said oh well i think i've got this principle where everything has been done before like i'm not trying to create anything new everything's been done before and i said it's like ikea it's modular so each of the individual components is not unique like it's it's just um but how you organize all of the individual components is unique to you so yeah. so like a random forest model isn't unique you can just go and grab you can go and copy and paste that from from anywhere online and it'll tell you all of the things to to change and all that type of stuff um a a an implementation to take a um to take a transactional table and turn it into a single customer view like that's not that's not new everybody does it all the time but what happened what i tend to found what tended to find was everybody it was always like a new thing like oh well that's a new piece of work or like uh, it's something else to add on to the stack whereas for me everything had been done before and just needed rearranging mm. so i had like loads and loads of code code bases and stuff that I just used to patch together to to make stuff fit and then um and so what uh Simon said was Simon said so Simon said you know what you should do you should write a book so I started writing the chapters and bits and pieces for what's for what was called the modular analytics cookbook um and then after about two weeks I realized that I'm an absolutely shit writer. Like I've got, no, I've got no interest in writing things like that, and I've got no interest in like the the academic side of things and like that chin stroking. And at that point, at that point, I thought actually this is better as a company. So what? And then what happened from that was um, I'd always been like a bit reticent to. Uh, have a like do a company like of this nature i never really knew how it fit uh, fit together with like my ethos um, yeah. about um and i never really wanted to do like without being rude like i didn't want to just create an analyst farm because that's good but then you're just managing analysts so i wanted a kind of a hybrid kind of tech play and then at the same time sean who i'd met through web help and he was one of those like really motivated entrepreneurial guys. He was like badgering me to start a company with it. He was like badgering, badgering, and badgering. And he's like, as as some of our clients now know, and like all of our friends, like he just doesn't stop until <laughs> until till he uh, he he just grinds you down. I think that's. I don't know if that's um the uh, one of the characteristics of a great salesman, but it's particularly his great characteristic. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, um, so eventually, like, I sort of said, yeah, fuck it. Like, this is right. We've got a really good plan. We've got, we've got a really good story about what we want to do. We want to, we want, we've got this 
we've got this modular approach that enables us to be faster, better and cheaper. And now we just want to like action against it and like just start the process. And that's what's that's what's been happening for the last for the last two years. Yeah, so I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned kind of what the goal was when you started and how it all came about. Um, I would like to read the first couple of chapters of the cookbook, though. Has <laughs> <laughs> uh, did anything change once you started? So once you got some customers, some projects, like did you did did it just kind of reaffirm everything that you thought might happen, or did you have to kind of pivot a little bit? And, and have you focused on one particular niche, like like contact centers, or is the whole point that you can use your kind of ethos anywhere? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So when me and Sean started, we effectively like we didn't have we didn't have any investors, so we just bootstrapped it. So we just did it ourselves, and we yeah. self did. So what that allowed us to do was to it gave us room and margin for error, because what happens is if you go for investment and you go right, I want five hundred grand and I'm going to do X, then you've got to do X. For us, it was like a little bit different. Like we were like, well, we've got the approach and the methodology. We just need to, we want to like learn about like what works in the market and things. So I think the messaging worked, like we're going to do things faster, better, cheaper, but the product and the, the services that we provide have just evolved. And I think, yeah. and I think the, they continue to evolve. I think, they'll only stop evolving when they pro we've probably got to a stage now where I spoke to our, uh, I spoke to our uh, data scientist who's been working with us for, for a while. And the plan that I gave at the end of the first year about what the platform we wanted to build was and what we wanted to do, like he privately called me and he went, Jimmy, like, this is, this is fucking nuts. Like nothing, nothing fits together. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's completely coherent. And I kind of went, well, you're just gonna have to trust me because I think this is the right thing to do. Um, and we started work. We started working on it. Now I reflect back on that. He was completely right. It wasn't completely incoherent. But now we've um, we've worked through it. I think, and we've bottomed out what we want to be and what we're good at. I think it is. Uh, I think we've got like much tighter on that. And I think, it, and that's not from me. I think that's from kind of everybody. Like everybody's contributed to that. So, so yeah. now, so now we say, you know, we're a decisioning company. Like we just want people to make faster, better decisions. And we want to support that through the use of data science and analytics. Um, that, w that wasn't quite as clear as where we are now. Um, yeah. we, we, we created point solutions. So we did like little bits here, little bits there. And like one of the big ones is we built our own speech transcription platform and we we did that because we wanted to do we wanted to do predictive analytics we we looked in the market for who could provide us for uh, transcription when a customer didn't have any data so if they had like really small amounts of data or the CRM was knackered or they didn't have a CRM at all like how can you create data so we're yeah. like do speech but everybody charges an absolute fortune for it so you know amazon and google are one pound 14 per hour if you go to Verin or nexidia or whoever they've created great solutions but i think they're prohibitively expensive for somebody who wants to experiment with stuff yeah so 
so we will so we stumbled across you know george and uh and Rue stumbled across some ideas and then just one day they said we're just going to build it ourselves and that was it was one of the most painful like stressful times but ultimately like the most rewarding um looking back on it because um just seeing like just seeing those those guys like working across uh those particular things those particular like um implementations and working it out and hacking it together and like looking what other people were doing and trying to backward um backward engineer stuff i think it was like it, it set us on such a good path once we once we cracked it you know yeah, what the, story. you know what the worst thing is what's that the worst, the worst thing is spending tens of thousands of pounds building your own speech transcription engine and then running it and it's spitting out booty pooty schmooty patua teetotaler teetotaler like a gajillion times like just that's it just nonsense all the way down and we spent that fortune and i was like fucking hell i was just about to go i was just about to go on holiday with the kids and i was like this is the worst thing that's ever happened because it because it's like it, it's your it's your money <laughs> like yeah. we Anyway, um, and yeah, we had like a real crisis of confidence. But um, yeah, once uh, once I'd like you know taken all the sharp objects away from everybody, like padded the <laughs> padded the cells, um, we kind of went back to the drawing board and worked out like where we were going wrong. Like had a look at had a look at some of the different stuff that we were doing incorrectly, and then it just and then it just clicked. We were like, oh shit! Like that's that's what we'd missed. And when we when we got that, I'll always remember. There's a picture of me in. Um, we'd gone to Disney with the kids, and like this was happening at the same time that I was there. So I was like trying to put on a brave face, and then um, and then uh, data the data scientist messaged me, and he's like, "We've got it. It's fucking work." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah!" <laughs> like with my with my, with my Mickey Mouse's, and I was like, "Get it." <laughs> So yeah, that was um, that was probably the most rewarding experience. I like that, and also yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll last couple of points. But we've um, no, I've noticed on LinkedIn that you guys have made some pretty big moves during COVID. I appreciate some of them were already in the works, but you, you've managed to get a couple of people on full time, right? So um, I think you've got a kind of recently appointed CIO, MD, CTO. Uh, and you said that the company's doing really well as well. So has that just been a result of a lot of hard work? And, and I think these guys were already working, right? But you've they've joined full time. Yeah. So we've got we've gone from having so over the last year, sorry, over the last two years, we've done next best act, we've got next best action like professional service, we're selling like what products should you sell to the correct customers and at what point. We did speech. We did speech analytics. We've got a platform that we've run like speech through, and we've done like multiple projects, and we've done like targeted coaching. So, and it, it, there's a really interesting thing around like next best action, but for people, like what sh- what should you be talking to them about in terms of like knowledge management or uh, if they're going to leave the company, so save conversations. We've done like a load of interesting things around uh, around that space plus other stuff, but it was just me. And then everybody else was like hustling around the sides. So yeah. 
Um, the plan was to just bring in one other person beside me this year. But we had a really good year um, and we had momentum. And, um, and I think ultimately, like it's a talent game and you just want like the best people around you. And so we just, we, you know, through like, a, through like experience on knowing people and stuff like that, we come, we, we'd had like effectively the board, um, and we had a, an idea about who we wanted from the board point of view, but, um, we, you know, we, we started speaking to a, a few other guys. So, um, we spoke to, um, Mike Smith. Mike and me have been friends for around 10 years. He used to work at Direct Line. Um, in fact, he used to block all of my fucking interesting analytics shit because it would never have worked. So he was like my mortal enemy at one point. <laughs> and he was like, why is Mike always fucking blocking? But anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, but we became friends and I realised he wasn't such a miserable bastard. <laughs> so a miserable fun spud. And then he's got a really great experience in um, in operational effectiveness. He's worked at like director level and stuff. Um, but he also he just he just gets it from a technical point of view. Um, and we've been speaking to him about like speaking to him about some work, and then it just seemed like a natural fit for him to to come in and look after our speech and our our coaching kind of propositions. And then about two years ago, no, about eighteen months ago, I was at a conference. And me and Sean, like, I don't, I never know really how to network. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I hate like direct sales pitches. I like to just like get drunk with my pals and just like shoot the shit. So we've done this time at the sales conference and we, we were like, right, let's just get some people drunk. <laughs> so, so we started, we, we had a few drinks. It was quite early to have Jaeger bombs, but we started to have a few drinks. And uh, a guy came, uh, came up who uh, called Mike Migliore. Um, and I just had a, like a really, really good conversation with him around uh, like types of customer value management. I'm not really spoken to people about before. Um, and he just kind of got it. And he was like super credible. And he's like, super smooth suave american so we were like completely different <laughs> so it's like so and then um and so and so yeah so over time like um we, we kept kept in contact and I, I knew the great stuff that he'd been doing and, and had been working on um and just character in terms of his character as well he was just like a really good fit and so we were fortunate enough for, for him to join as um as uh our like our managing director of customer value and then and then and then kind of overall our overall strategy is like we we got to kind of march when covid was just about to hit at the beginning yeah. and we were having a little bit of re review and um, myself and sean and we were saying like it's good to like make sure um you're making good decisions and you're making um and you're documenting those decisions and you're kind of orientating yourself around like well we did this and we did that and at that point we were like we could furlough, we could scale back, but if if COVID nineteen is going to teach us anything, it's that shit, real bad shit can happen. Like, and why would you waste time doing stuff when you should be like activating and going for stuff now? And we just take, took the decision that like, no, like now is the time that we want to activate this stuff. Like now is the time that we want to like, you know, we can improve retention strategies for people that have um, that have been affected by uh, COVID. You know, we could do predictive 
quality assurance. We can say what the relative risk is for people uh, through homeworking. Um, and we can start like we can we can bring everyone together and have like you know two months when we can get our own shit in order as well, rather than it just being like on the hamster wheel. And so yeah, we just made a conscious decision that you know we like risk and we like to uh, back ourselves, and that's that's what ultimately we've done. We've just we're just backing ourselves. I love that story. That's amazing. Um, oh. and we, we've done something similar. We've not followed anyone, and we thought may as well just let's let's grind through COVID and, and come out the other side, having helped people and, and done some things that we might not have done before. So that's a, that's a great story from you guys. So lastly, on work, where is the best place for everyone to find you guys in terms of like uh, social media or anywhere that you guys post or, or do anything? Um, yeah. So. There's our website, which is www.tmac.limited, L-I-M-I-T-E-D. Um, but mainly speaking, like the best place to find us is on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Generally, you'll see me posting like a combination of slightly interesting analytics stuff and then random shit about random shit about politics and mainly some <laughs> mainly like rubbish memes that I find funny. Um, I should probably get a better content strategy, but that's kind of what I do uh, right now. If you're interested in talking to me, I think I come from, I've got like a good background when it comes to uh, to operational effectiveness and marketing effectiveness. But I think we've got something for, I think we've got something for everybody. We've got like great change guys and transformation guys like Sean. We've got guys who've been there and done it and got the scars like Mike Smith. Um, and we've got a, a whole like digital proposition with uh, with Mike McLeary as well. And then not to not to say anything about the guys at the back. So Ruse, who's just left, Ruse, who's joined as our CTO, uh, does a lot of web dev stuff and builds out our products. And then you've got George, who's our recent uh, recent addition as CIO, who effectively it's his brain that does everything. So I just say <laughs> this idea, George, can you just work out how you do it? And then maybe that's why he's lost all his hair. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think it's great. And uh, people should definitely check you guys out. And it'd be cool to see where you are at, maybe even just this time next year. It'll, it'll, it'll fly in, I'm sure. Couldn't have you on the podcast and not talk about football, though. Uh, so you mentioned you post loads of memes and like other stuff. I noticed on, on your Twitter, it's just lots of stuff about United. Uh, some of it's vaguely related to analytics, but most of it is just United specific. So it makes sense given you're in Manchester. I just argue with people all the time on Twitter. Like, it's nothing. <laughs> like, I remember, I don't know how I've got all these followers, but, like, most of my followers are from, like, Kenya and Nigeria and places like that. It's, and it's weird. And, like, I started tweeting about United um, probably about, in fact, that, that might have been, like, nearly 10 years ago since I've had my Twitter account. Um, and it used to be, like, a nice place where you could just, like, <laughs> people and now it's like a dumpster fire where like you don't you can i'm like i'm an argumentative person but like even the least argumentative person can can be called racist in in the course of two tweets so it's really strange and then i probably like when um probably started to get some uh what football team do you support so i'm a house fan in scotland but i like united from my dad liking them because a lot of scottish people uh obviously managers and players from back in the day so uh mm. i'm fond of united so my brother uh i'm a brother-in-law so my my um my uh wife's cousin is married to andy webster 
Um, oh was, yeah, yeah. So former hats, yeah, that. yeah. So yeah, think, you won the Scottish Cup for us. He's a great lad. I know he's mate. He's like the best, the best guy. Like he's like, and he's and we're the same age, and he's like six foot four, and like not an inch of fat on him. And I've put on two stone already during COVID, and like I'm just smoking and drinking stuff. So yeah, he's, uh, he's got a whole rule named after him, like the Bosman rule. <laughs> The Webster rule, in. yeah. The Webster rule, yeah. I remember that very well. Uh, yeah. oh, that's that's hilarious. I mean, we've just been we've just been forcefully demoted from the SPL, so uh, it's not a great time to be a Hearts fan. No, it's. I think I used to watch Scottish football quite a bit back in the day, um, but like I used to watch just football in general more. I just don't seem to have time anymore. Um, yeah, I don't watch much anymore. This whole Bundesliga stuff, I've, I think I've done twenty minutes. Yeah, have you? I what, can't do it. What do you reckon to Solskjaer then? Is it, is it the answer? I don't know. I mean, the signings have been good. He he seems to know what he wants to do. I just don't know if he's got the... I don't know if he's got the chops for it. No. I think um, I got... I got used to get a load of shit because I was... I'm a Louis Van Gaal fan. Um, but just you're, generally, the, you're, the, you're the only one. <laughs> I can tell you to not publish this podcast if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the only Louis Van Gaal fan. But, like, I really... I really liked the shit that he did. Like, if you look at his track record over, like, a long period of time, like, even when he got binned from places, like, the, he left, like, at least some legacy. Yeah. Um, I suppose, like, like that that was probably, what, five years ago. That's when, like, I started to put on some followers. I've got, like, the diehard LVG in crowd following me. And then everybody who was like pro Mourinho or just pro anybody else but the boring fucking footballer used to play then. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I, mean, I think arguably better than Jose, but... Uh, I, yeah. I think... Bad. I think Solskjaer will be all right. If he can get on a couple of signings and like he has done, uh, I'd hope that they'll do something. But they're so far away from Liverpool, it's not even funny, which is just... It's just sad. <laughs> Interesting from an analytics point of view. Did you have you did you hear about how they're like prioritizing signing? Uh, from from Man United. Yeah. No, so, I don't think so. So they're doing like so for each individual position, they've like categorized it. So so my, my ultimate my ultimate job would be doing analytics for a football team. Yeah. Like the problem is like whenever I've gone for a job, they pay nothing <laughs> because everybody because the demand's so high they don't have to pay that much but anyway that might not be the case nowadays um so what they do is they like for each individual position they've got like a ranking system a rating system and um, based on like um based on like kpis and then they've got people who are like um from one to five so they've got yeah. got so they've got like elite like first choice players and then they've got um second choice third choice so you've got all different types and as people play or as things move people are moving up and down each of the ladders so at any given time you know when you you'll have seen on twitter you well you see on twitter a load of stuff being spoken about but we talk about the strikers united are interested in and you yeah. can go and you go like musa dembele um harry kane timo werner um, Raul Jimenez, like what they were saying is Raul Jimenez is a target, but he's not—he's like the fifth target. They've got like four—they've got four other people in front of that, and I thought that was quite interesting. I, I like, I'm, and I'm interested about like—I I do think the principles, without going back to like the job, the principles of how sport is taking 
new metrics, creating new metrics about how to measure player performance. Like, you know, the money ball one, which is like, it doesn't matter as long as you get on base, as long as you get on base. So just so walks became important. And, yeah. and the thing around like possession, no one gives a shit about possession now. It's all about like sprints and sprint intensity um, in football. Like I do think that like nobody's properly doing that in a business environment. Like you saw like MPS make a big splash like what was it 10 years ago or something like that but like actually like has mps been been successful like as mps as like a business-wide metric has that driven the right behaviors like i think there's a whole heap of stuff that you could be doing like in the corporate space that mimics like sport where you're finding better kpis to through which to measure performance so I didn't want i'm sorry to bring it back to corporate we'll no, it's, it's a good way it's a good way of doing it yeah, no, I think there's some, some really good parallels there. All right, well, I think we'll wrap it up there, but it was good to talk about your journey. I mean, as I said at the start, nobody's ever really done the same thing, and, and it was really cool to hear, like, just for getting from not really knowing what you wanted to do after uni and then ended up in the kind of analytics world and now running your own company. I think it's a pretty cool story for other people to listen to. If maybe, maybe if they are 14 or 15 and they've not got a fucking clue what they want to do, that's okay. <laughs> um, no, I think from that... I didn't. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had twenty jobs before I became an analyst. I used to. I was a painter and decorator. I used to. I used to be a pot wash. I used to clean gutters. It basically, one. I was a painter and decorator, and a guy saw me like halfway up some ladders, like four four stories up, like holding onto some onto a window in the middle, and like painting around it. And he shouted from me from the bottom, and he's like, "Yo." Oh, and I was like, what? He's like, you're good with heights, aren't you? Like, yeah, because I've got a job for you. So I started cleaning gutters. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, yeah, without the proper safety equipment. So, yeah, I think you've you've got to, like, work it out yourself, haven't you? You've got to work out, like, what you're good at and what you want to do. We put a lot of pressure on young people to, like, make a choice early doors. And I think yeah. if you have less pressure, I think people would make different decisions. But I think things have turned all right for me. Yeah, well, I think so. But no, yeah, I really do appreciate you coming on, and uh, it'll be cool to see where where the modular analytics company goes. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get you back on as well, and we'll, we'll chat again. Yeah, that'll be great. Perfect, Speaking. good man. Cheers, Jimmy. I did tell you he was a ball of energy. That was a really, really fun podcast. Jimmy uh, obviously loves what he does. Um, super passionate and. I can see what he's setting up being a, being a massive success. So it was really good to talk to him. Um, always good to talk to someone about football as well. Um, the other thing that I like um, in this world, other than data, which is a big Man United fan, and, and apparently the only person that likes Louis Van Hal ever. So I hope you enjoyed. Um, thank you to Cathcart Associates for continuing to let me do this as work, and we'll be back soon. So thank you for listening.